Do you feel that in a time when we are more connected than ever, we are drifting away from real human connections, especially to ourselves? I do. Hi, I'm Leticia Latino, and I want to invite you to join me and my very inspiring guests in exploring ways to reconnect to your essence, to your definite purpose, to what makes you tick. Are you ready? Hello and welcome to a new episode of Back to Basics, Reconnecting to the Essence of You. I want to welcome Louis Lopresti today. He's an author, former corporate strategist, and chief of staff. He currently mentors and supports leaders in high stress, complex businesses, and serves as a special advisor to a national blockchain food security working group. His primary areas of advisement are energy, finance, security intelligence, management, and global economics. He was named number eight in the world by LinkedIn in 2015 for management and culture, and is the author of Vague Apocalyptica, Essays on Capitalism, Humanism, and Democracy. He's also a poet, novelist, and visual arts. With that, I want to welcome you, Louis, to Back to Basics. How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me on, Leticia. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Well, we love, uh, absolutely. I love to have intellectually motivating people. And when I discover your writings and I discover you, your work, I definitely became very intrigued. And so I'm very excited about having this conversation and I think the audience is going to be equally excited after they hear you speak. So we normally start here at Back to Basics with asking our guests about their childhood and uh, who you were as a child. And uh, mm-hmm. really that very special time in one's life where you had no expectations about what is going to be of your life. And what did interest you? What did you like to do? If you can share that with us. Sure. So I was the youngest of four kids in my own family, and then the youngest of 13 grandkids in a very, fairly large Italian-American family system. My grandparents on both sides, with the exception of my paternal grandfather, came from Italy probably in the late late, uh, 1800s, early 1900s, when there was a great diaspora from Europe to America. So I grew up in a really, in some ways, a very traditional family. I've often said that with the exception of not speaking Italian, which stopped with my, the generation before my parents, or with their generation, their their parents' generation, which was, you know, in many ways, disappointing because we didn't learn uh, Italian. I learned Italian in college, actually, and we only heard smattering of it when I was a kid. But other than the language, we were raised in a very traditional household, no different than how you would have been raised in Naples or Sicily. We, you know, went to church every week. We spent most of our time with our immediate family, cousins. And our grandparents on both sides, we visited them every weekend. And then the other element of it was a real strong influence from, I think, conservative America. My father and his brother and both of my uncles were United States Marines. So we grew up with, you know, a combination of old world influence from Italy and then a real strong American influence. We lived at that time. My hometown was rural. So we grew up in a pretty woodsy place in New England. So spending time outdoors. You know, my father was an avid hunter. His his brother and my uncles were avid hunters. So we grew up kind of around pretty rustic, traditional American upbringing, not different than, than you'd have in the American South or the American Northwest. So in some ways, pretty typical. You know, it was the early 1970s, too. So there were some very quaint ideas about a normal middle class life. I think some of those, some of it doesn't exist anymore. Some of it's distasteful to some people, rightfully so. And then you know, and then the last part of it is it wasn't all rosy. I grew up in a pretty rough family and, you know, I spent a lot of time learning uh, about myself after I became an adult. So that's a pretty good, that's a pretty good summary, yeah. No, absolutely. And, uh, I mean, we could have a different show all about the difference of Italian upbringings of Italians that made it to the U.S. And, uh, mm-hmm. of course, at an earlier time, and, of course, I'm first-generation Italian, uh, raised, born and raised in Venezuela, and, and our parents were so, my parents were so committed to, you know, us learning Italian and us almost not feeling Venezuelan, sure. which is very strange. I sometimes right. joke around that my dad 
would see me eating, I don't know, white rice and would say, you're eating like a Venezuelan. And I'm like, I'm Venezuelan. <laughs> so it was very strange. And then I, I have a lot of friends, like in your case, of course, it was an earlier immigration, so harder to to maintain, you know, maybe the language. But I think there was a, a need to fit in maybe for those Italians that made it to the U.S. And, and many of my friends oh, don't I'm speak Italian. Absolutely. You know, one of the jokes that generation would make that probably wouldn't go over too well nowadays is that my grandparents would because they were restaurant people. So they opened restaurants here in the 1920s, 1930s. And, you know, they got burnt out of one place by the mafia. They got harassed in the 30s and 40s because they were successful in a period of time when there was still this influence of the Italians, at least in Boston and the North Shore of Boston. And one of the jokes my grandfather used to make was that, you know, there weren't any signs in Italian for him as an uneducated person working in the U.S. There weren't, you know, there weren't signs in Italian for him, for him to how to do his job or to how to, how to do things. So I think they yeah. had this attitude of becoming American was very important to that generation. And I think, and mind you, that whole generation fought in World War II. So, Absolutely. you know, I, I could say a lot of great things about that generation as having put aside where they were from to become part of this culture. And in many ways, although people don't often see it coming, I'm in very ways a very proud American in, in, a, in a lot of ways because I saw my own family come through the immigration process into becoming fully American. We, my grandparents lived in, outside of Boston. Uh, my granddad went to Boston Latin, which was a you know fairly famous school in Boston at the time. And then by the time it got to my parents' generation, they moved us out to the suburbs. We grew up in, I grew up in Andover, Massachusetts, which is a pretty nice place. And that journey from pretty much the inner city, they came, I think they came through uh, Ellis Island in East Boston, which used to be, there's a park in East Boston called Mopresti Park for my father's family. And they all came wow. through that, those immigration centers in the city and made it out to the burbs, got college degrees, and in my father's case, an advanced degree. And I think seeing that from a very simple point of view informs my my own outlook as both a, a child of Amer American Italians, but also as an American as, and having had a lot of respect for the process that people go through to become Americans and to be part of this culture. So I have a lot of respect for that to this day. Absolutely. No, that's a powerful heritage. Mm -hmm. And so you were obviously with this interesting heritage and background. Was there anything in particular that as a kid or as a child you remember interest you in particular or you kind of discover your interest and your passions a little bit later on? I was a quiet kid. So to be a quiet kid in an Italian-American family is tough. <laughs> because, I can imagine. And and I was the youngest of, you know, this huge clan of grandkids. And, you know, you had to, um, we didn't have to fight for food by any means, but you had to fight for your place. And, you know, I was a shy kid. I, to be honest, um, you know, I was a bit of a stutterer. I, I was not the most self-assured person on the planet. I was a little awkward, even a little, you know, shy at first. And where... I lived wasn't that developed either at the time. So you could just walk right out the back door into an apple orchard and farther afield into an entire forest reserve called the Harold Parker State Forest. And, you know, even though it's very much a suburb now and a developed one at that and a fairly large one, I think. But I spent most of my childhood walking around in the forest. I'd be lying if I said that I had the most, like, interactive and supportive childhood because my parents, I, I was the youngest, and I think by that time they might have been a little tired and also my siblings are a little bit older. So I spent a lot of time alone. And that meant that I, I immediately developed a very vivid imagination. And I think I, I knew as early as about six that I wanted to be a writer. And I didn't really, you know, who knows what, you don't know what that means at six, but I knew that I wanted to tell stories. I had a really, you know, I was, you know, a funny thing I was obsessed with, I was obsessed with the Jerry Lewis Telethon. Remember the Jerry Lewis Telethon for most most yes, districts. Yes. I don't know why I was obsessed with this, but I had this strong inclination to help uh, the less fortunate, to help people that were physically disabled. I ended up doing that work when I was in high school. I ended up volunteering and working with uh, physically disabled kids. And actually, a big part of the hockey program I was part of uh, was traveling to Canada to play. And part of that was we would, which was an amazing experience, was we would go to what we went to a school for kids that had physical disabilities and we played hockey with them in wheelchairs on a basketball court. 
And I think it made a huge impression on us as, as little kids that there were people in this world that were less fortunate who couldn't didn't have the same physical capability. But we made a lot of friends that way. We did that several years in a row when I was a kid. I think the two presiding inclinations in my young adult years were that I, I was a voracious reader. I was very athletic, partially by, by influence because my father was a workhorse and put me into football and hockey and lacrosse. And then, but I, I, I think my greatest loves of them were, as a kid were probably, I could say, being outdoors and reading which, you know, I'm sitting in Vermont now, so that obviously had an influence. Well, that's when, for me, I mean, I never met you in person, and, uh, but obviously this is for me, my aha moment when you hear about uh, someone's childhood and then you mix it with what I've read about you and what you, how you've been described by other people or some of your book that I've read, and, and then it says, like, aha, that makes sense. What you're describing, I saw... Uh, a video that you have, I think, somewhere, in it, and it says that you've always wanted to give people a voice. And so yeah. hearing how you're volunteering with people that are less fortunate and, and that whole story that, that you're telling me about Derek Lewis, and uh, it, it's like it really relates to that. That seems very young age you were already doing that. Yeah, I, I'm an empathic person. It's, that's hard a lot for men to kind of relate to because, you know, in the U.S., men are going to be tough and men have got to be warriors and men really aren't allowed so much to show their feelings men aren't allowed to be depressed there's a bunch of great writing on this that i've been reading lately by a psychologist named terence real and i think in this generation we're seeing that men are being allowed i don't know if that's the word i want to use but being encouraged to be more emotional and empathic i was that way naturally as a kid so i had a bit of a hard time you know i have a very funny story the opening of my novel capernaum is taken right out of my childhood. My father's father was a barber and he had all the gear. <laughs> he had the unfoldable barber chair. He had the big barber's apron. He had the scissors and the clippers. And every summer they would buzz all our heads. They would give us all buzz cuts. Well, of course they are Marines. So, you know, <laughs> they would just chop off our hair. But every time they did, I would just cry. You know, and my siblings would look at me like, why is he crying? And my, my grandfather would be like, you know, he's just sensitive. <laughs> he, oh doesn't like to, he doesn't like to be looked at. So I was this <laughs> awkward kid sometimes, but I had a giant heart that I really didn't know what to do with. And I, you know, and I can't say I knew what to do with it much into my adult, uh, into my adult life. I'm still really sensitive about a lot of stuff that probably goes right over people's heads. And I'm like, wait a minute, you know, so. That empathy that you feel, it's showcased in your work. So I think it's definitely a powerful tool. So so obviously, obviously you grew up and then uh, you did pursue university degree, I believe, right? Yeah, I got my, my degree from, yeah, I have some stops and starts. And I, I did my BA at Northeastern University here in Boston in philosophy and pre-medical studies. I was double. Um, I got out in two and a half years. My I went right through my undergraduate degree full time and and took about anywhere from six to even seven courses a semester to get through. I just wanted to get it done. And at that mm -hmm. time, I wanted to be a physician. Then I went to the University of London and started my master's, what's called an MPhil, which is a master's in philosophy and critical theory and cultural criticism, which is a very interesting degree. And then I went mm -hmm. further on to law school in in my late 20s, I left law school to move to the West Coast. I started my MFA, my MFT, and I actually started my doctoral work at the University of Edinburgh just last year in ethics, mind, and epistemology. So I don't know. It's some I don't know. It's a placement in my horoscope. Somebody said to me once, but I'm <laughs> you know I'm, I'm I'm constantly seeking education. I don't know if it will turn out that I'll formally get my PhD or even finish my law degree, but who knows? I'm only there's plenty of time. <laughs> well, you know, for reading some of your stuff, I don't think you need a PhD because it's, uh, I mean, it's already, <laughs> it's already quite great. And that, like, you. you can tell you right from a very different source, you know, like some of us are inspirational and day to day, but you can tell you have the goods behind <laughs> the, the, you know, the, the philosophy and that deep mm -hmm. understanding of, of something else. Yeah. That uh, at least to me is very very appealing. So so I understand, and I want to get into your book because it's, it's great, and definitely Please. we will have the links uh, on on the show notes for everybody to check it out. Um, yeah, but 
but I know you did have your brush, obviously, with uh, the corporate world. And, and yeah. You went into a traditional form of living, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm very curious to hear about that. I, I, I always tell people when I get, a, you know, this question or a version, a version of this question that, you know, I got out of college, and this is another funny story. I got out of college, and it was very traditional for my family to throw a graduation party. And everybody, all your relatives would come and friends would come. And when I got out of Northeastern and back from London, because I went right out of my degree into my master's, I came home and they had this party for me. And I announced, I mean, you've got you to imagine the arrogance of a 25-year-old kid, because that's, that's the kind of arrogance that would say this. <laughs> I, said, I said, I just want to tell everybody I'm not going to work. I'm going to be a writer. <laughs> Oh, wow. (laughs) And and the table just went, this is about, you know, 20 of my relatives, and it just went dead quiet. And my uncle, um, uh, my uncle Philip, who's uh, gone now, God rest, he said, Mm. you know, in a very, very, you know, this very working class voice he had, he said, you know, no offense, but I I went through the New York Times this morning and I was looking for philosopher for hire, and there were no job postings. (laughs) <laughs> so, so, oh. you know there was a real sense of humor in my family of what i was going to do i, I think probably concern i spent the next couple of years traveling i went to um i hitchhiked all over the u.s i went and took part in a lot of uh you know i went to spiritual ashrams i went to learn yoga i went to to work with peruvian shamans i ended up in india I lived in uh, Greece for a period of time with my girlfriend then and was just writing. I tried my first novel and it nearly killed me. And then eventually <laughs> around it did and nearly, I don't suggest writing a novel when you're 28 because A, you probably don't have a lot to say unless you've had a very interesting life and B, it's just too hard. I mean, I didn't write another novel for 20 years almost. So wow. starting in, starting in about 2003, I'd moved to, I started law school. We left to come to the West Coast. Then my partner then, and she and I decided, well, let's move to the West Coast and I'll finish my law degree in Los Angeles. And when I got to Los Angeles, we had bills to pay and a house to support. And I ended up working, um, ended up working in the restaurant business. And I ended up waiting tables and cooking and, and trying to make ends meet, as people often do. And my law degree kind of just fell by the wayside. And, I, and that's something I regret to this day. I think that was a mistake I made. At that point, my relationship ended amicably. And I set out at that point to do whatever I needed to do. And I remember looking on Craigslist and saying, I'm going to take the first job offered to me, no matter what it is. And I ended up doing investor relations for a over-the-counter stock market for a stockbroker. He represented and, and sold uh, over-the-counter pink sheet stocks, just like the, the Wolf of Wall Street. Same idea. Big okay. office, bunch of phones. He was not like that character. He was a very different guy. But just like that, big banks of phones and, you know, a whole list of people to call to sell the issues to. And then what happened was, sorry about the dog. So then after that, I got into advertising and ended up looking at how to do marketing and bring technology into the, into the marketing practice. And so this is early 2004. So Facebook gets found and I get sucked into um, how to bring social media into advertising and I ended up working for about 10 years in that. And by the time only, that was 2003, 2004. By 2007, I was senior vice president at Rap Collins in LA. So my career went berserko from somebody with no experience in advertising to senior vice president in four years when I was 37. Pretty amazing trajectory. After that, I kind of, you know, my, I had a reputation for being outspoken. I had a reputation for being very fast, being very um, nimble about how I did Marketing, the environment that marketers existed in them on the consumer side was changing. And it was a very heady period. But then once the recession hit, it became more difficult. A lot of people with what I call art and copy values, you know, good copy, really imaginative, creative, that whole generation of um, advertising executives got wiped out by automation and wiped out by marketing, what they call marketing uh, applications or marketing science that, or okay. data-driven science. So at that point, I started to work on an idea for uh, making analysis of the global, of global economy from a perspective of different benchmarks in the market. So I took marketing data insight and I took my earlier experience as a stock advisor and combined them and created a startup. And in 2011, we got funded 
And then I started getting into management consulting. So my career after that became consulting to founders, CEOs, managing directors, and pretty much being a turnaround and a change management professional using technology as a, as a mode to look at organizations. And I did that for another, I did that until about 2015. I took another assignment as head of strategy for McCann Erickson in Malaysia in 2015. That was uh, just a really raw and upside down situation. Um, I got pulled into a subsidiary of the large agency and then my contracts weren't so weren't organized in a way that I, that was good, beneficial to me. It was really one of the more difficult experiences I had as an executive was to have moved all that way and then been disappointed by the quality of the contract. So I fought for a lot. I fought really hard towards over the last last five years. I had to start fighting really hard for my place in the corporate spectrum because I I'm not somebody who's gonna a lot of the mistakes I made in my corporate career, without sounding self-righteous or immodest, were really because I was insisting on a level of transparency and ethicality that a lot of people didn't want to hear. Like if I said, we can't do that, we really don't have that kind of team, they would say, well, we'll, you know, we'll fake it till we make it. And I would say, well, I don't know about doing that with this client, it's dishonest. Or when I would insist on a certain level of um, – certain level of workplace conduct where people were respectful and at the same time fully honest and fully transparent. And something I've written a lot about is transparency in the workplace. A lot of people didn't react to that well. There's, you know, there's, a, there's an unspoken narrative in corporate America that you kind, of, you kind of keep your mouth shut and you try to go along to get along. And I never agreed with that, never was going to buy into that. So my corporate career was, was a difficult one. And by the time I ended up in Silicon Valley in 2014, with an idea that I was going to do do what everybody else does there, which is bootstrap my startup, get funded, and become a gajillionaire, that obviously didn't happen. And along the way, I encountered a level of um, what's the word? I encountered a, a a way of being out there that I hadn't encountered before. Now I've done business in Manhattan. I lived in Chicago. I lived in L.A. I was used to people who hustle. That's not new. But in Silicon Valley, there was something new about it. There was something different about it. And I think it was that Silicon Valley, in many ways, is completely antithetical to who I am as a person. And there's no other way to say it. I'm about the inward journey, about authenticity. Silicon Valley is about innovation, about changing the external world, about hustling and grinding and working obscene hours. And um, it's also, I'm about letters and poetry. Silicon Valley is really brimming with logic, with engineers, and with a really Again, not people probably don't want to hear this, but it's really about male energy. It's filled with testosterone. I mean, I lived in San Jose. I didn't nary saw a woman when I went out, you know, and it's a place just filled with engineers. And engineers have a very, very practical ABC way of looking at life. You know, I'm not going to tell you that every engineer is that way. Uh, certainly they aren't. But there's also this element of, like, that you're going to work your butt off for a period of time to get the stuff you want. And then... After that, you'll do what you really want. Well, I think during the period of time that you're working to get stuck is when you lose your soul. And I think a lot of people don't want to admit that, admit that but I, I believe that because I did it. I don't feel like I was connected to my life's journey during the decade or so that I was chasing the brass ring in corporate America. Well, um, I'm speechless right now. Hearing you say all that, <laughs> it's, like it's just a philosophical class, but it's something that here at the podcast and and with my husband, we speak a lot about because it's that being connected, as you say, being connected as you work, as you do your day-to-day. -day, that's the essence of this podcast is reminding so that we remember what is that keeps us connected to uh, our true essence and fight for it because obviously it takes courage and God to do what you did because you basically were very aware of what made you happy, what you wanted to do, and you say, this is not it. So I'm I'm really moving on. In a previous conversation that we had, you mentioned something, you know, in terms of how you measure success and people's perception of success. And I think that's the, the biggest fight we all have is that is we know we're being kind of measured by society, by our neighbors, by our family. And any distraction or, or digression from that, we know we're going to be judged. And it's, can we pull Absolutely. up, well, in my view, it's like, can can I live with that? Can I live with being judged and, 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 
and justify what I'm doing or, or, or I can't. And, and the sad part is a lot of people can't, so they just follow a path that doesn't make them happy. I think that it's such an important aspect. I, there's a lot of it in my writing. I talk a lot about this. I think you do get judged. I have been personally judged by people in my life. I'll be very frank. This discrepancy between what is meaning and what is success is, is really the primary reason why my last relationship ended. In the beginning, like you say, it's a lot of, um, it's in the beginning with everybody, there's a lot of, there's a lot of chemicals involved. There's a lot of neurochemicals that come along with falling in love with somebody and a lot of lack of realism. You really don't see the person for three to six months, even a year. I don't think we really see the person who we're with. And at that time, 2014, I've been living in Italy in a stone house in a vineyard that was given to me in exchange for working on their vineyard. So my day consisted of getting up, making it a coffee in the kitchen, out looking out over the vineyards that looked out to Siena, and then going up the hill about 10 minutes with a machete, literally, and hacking the bottom of the vines and cleaning up the vines, raking out the, the corridor between each vine, coming back down to the house, making some delicious lunch of homemade pasta or rabbit or something fantastic, and then riding through the afternoon and then walking into the town. You know, I'd walk through the vineyards 10, min- 10 15 minutes straight uphill into the town for a glass of wine. Is the ideal living for a 44-year-old writer. It was, for me, it was just heaven. And I decided to, I said, I'm going to go back to Silicon Valley and, and give it a shot and be with this gal I'd met. And, you know, it didn't work out because what I had then was what I think she wanted for her life eventually, as, as anybody would. Let's retire to Italy. But I was already there in Italy. I was already had it. I didn't need more than what I had. But I thought, okay, yeah, I'll go back and I'll make I'll make buckets of money and then I'll come back to this. And what happened was is that I couldn't change the part of me that got me to Italy to begin with. And I could never relate to the part of that person who was really about having a competitive and powerful place in life, about luxury travel and about nice clothing. I like all those things, but they're not motivational for me. What's motivational for me is asking myself, am I making meaning in the world? Because the world seems more and more meaningless the older I get. It, and I, I won't lie to you. I do feel that way. I think there's a lot of challenges to being a meaningful, having a meaningful existence, creating meaningful relationships, and being in a role of having impact with others that is true and authentic. There's real challenges to that now for many different reasons. And that wasn't ever going to come out of me because I moved to Mountain View. Okay. It was going to be, it was going to, in fact, my effort to bury that part of myself was disastrous. And I have to take responsibility for that. I wasn't being true to myself, regardless of another person, regardless of who we're in relationship with, regardless of what our friends tell us or what our company tells us or what the newspaper tells us. If we're not true to ourselves, at a very deep level, it's not easy, and say, I don't, I don't want to live here. I want to live in the back. I want to live in the woods of Vermont and figure out a life there. And that's what I'm doing. But it took me four years to get here. It took me, and I went back. I left and went to London to be chief of staff for a private equity firm. Could have easily stayed and gone to Scotland, could have gone over to Italy or France. I went back. I went back to Silicon Valley to give it another shot because part of me thought that showing devotion to a person and showing devotion in a way that says, I'll do whatever it takes, including skipping over the part of myself that didn't want to be there. Now, that's disastrous. That's, I think you referred to the, the questions you sent me. Did you have an experience that was devastating or traumatizing that you got lost? And I'd say that, yeah, I definitely did. And that's what happened. That, that is interesting. You made me remember uh, as a little side story and funny story for myself, I once, when I was dating and trying to find, you know, the perfect guy, I wrote a list of um, my ideal guy. And so I found it in of what I wrote on the list. It was perfect. And um, it was the worst relationship I've had. I cried the night I kissed him for the first time because I kissed the guy and it was perfect. It was exactly what I wrote. But I didn't realize that it's not just about the labels or the quality. You know, if there's something else. And and that mm-hmm. night I felt like I was betraying myself, you know, because on one end it was like, okay, this is what it's supposed to be and, and, and everything seems in place, but I was betraying myself uh, in what I was feeling. And it was one of the worst experiences I've had. Not the case, but just 
that feeling of, wow, I betrayed oh, sure. my, myself, my own heart, just to go through the motion and, and try to find the perfect catch. So I, 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 I don't I, know, I, when you said that, I can totally relate to, to what you just said. We're prone to do this. I call it comparison porn because okay. if, you go on to, if you go on to Instagram or you go on to Facebook, everybody seems to be leading an incredible lifestyle. You know, somebody's got a picture of a, you know, of a Ferrari parked with the door open and somebody else has a picture of the champagne tasting they went on and somebody else has pictures of the perfect body they got from doing yoga 65 hours a week. Social media does this. It props up a lot of false imagery and people worship a false image of life when life really is about, you know, what I call four o'clock in the morning courage is you got to get up because your kid threw up <laughs> or you've got to yeah. get up and, or your parent is dying. My mother's in hospice. She's terminally ill. That's an incredibly raw experience to have with a parent, you know, or my father's going blind and death. It's, it's difficult to watch people age. If you go into San Francisco or people think, oh, my gosh, San Francisco, the hub of innovation, people don't realize that homelessness there is endemic. It's, it's every street corner. The smell of urine is, is through the roof. The city smells because there's so many people living in the street. And I think people don't want to admit yet that, that um, you know, life is really not about the snapshots we want everybody to think it's about. Life is really about much deeper and sometimes painful experiences. And when we have an idealism of what life should be like, it often fails. I went back to Silicon Valley. I was here in Vermont actually finishing Vague Apocalyptic. I finished that in this very house. And then I went back to work for the schoolfund.org. They give direct grants to kids that are gifted in India and in Africa. I ran the organization for about a year. And when I went back, as a gesture to my partner at the time, I got the apartment, I got the car, I, you know, put down roots and, you know, going to give it my all. To your point about having had a list of what your perfect partner looked like, my list for what a perfect life looked like or what devotion to another person or showing commitment looked like included all those things. And, you know, I found myself two years later broke, uh, broken and utterly disgusted with the place uh, and at the core to be honest to your point disgusted with my choice really disappointed by my own choice not to have lived my life for me and instead i lived it for another person and i lived it for a vision of what successful power couple looked like in silicon valley that has no meaning to me if you asked me today i would say that's as far away as antithetical was the word i used it's as far away and as antithetical from what i want from my life now than than that I could think of. And I've always wanted, I think, what I'm beginning to grow here in terms of a life, in terms of a potential relationship, in terms of raising a small family, in terms of, you know, having a very simple existence. You go through those experiences, I believe, to learn who you really are. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you you are in a good place. You are right now living in Vermont. The other day mm -hmm. you mentioned you were uh, looking at the cow. You have to move the cow, the truck, and you were describing a day in your life, <laughs> which uh, sounds exciting. I mean, it sounds so basic that it, uh, in the sense that you're connected to nature, to animals. Me and my husband always say this. I go to Sicily every year. I'm, I'm very lucky. My parents instilled this in, in us, that going back every summer and spend the summer, and that we've been able to afford doing that. And now I'm doing it with my kids. And, and But one of the reasons why I go back, because life there is so much simpler. And we always say, even my husband, he's Dutch, but he says, life here seems more true, you know, more real in terms of what people do, how people connect with each other, where you, you take a long uh, lunch or dinner, well, all those good things that Italians are known for. But they do that in their day-to-day. It's not like they do that on, only on vacation. And we mm -hmm. live in the U.S. where people, I read the statistics a few a few months back, is the country where people leave the most unused paid vacations in the world. That's right. So That's basically right. people get paid for their vacation, but they're not taking that vacation. They're leaving it unused just to stay at work. It's crazy. I cannot envision or, or, or the newest development is for people to work remotely, so they may go someplace to work remotely like the Caribbean but they still work. Oh. And I could think of nothing worse than bringing my laptop, you know, with me 
to work while I'm staying in Anguilla or in Trinidad or some, some beautiful place. I'm going to bring my laptop and say, oh, I just have a few emails to send. You know, I, I mean, you know what it really is, which is just pace is, you know, I lived in Italy. I've lived in Europe. I, I love the pace. I walked 20 minutes to get to town to get a Wi-Fi signal. People are like, you didn't have Wi-Fi? How did you, how did you live? I said, I said very well. In fact, I didn't, I wasn't distracted. And the other thing is, you know, when I flew out of, when I got out of Silicon Valley, I lived right in the heart of it. I lived in San Jose and spent plenty of time up in the city. When I got out of there, I realized, my God, that's a different country. That's that whole zip code from the bottom of San Jose, probably all the way up into Marin, about 40 miles. That's a whole different country. I'm not saying everybody there is living the life of, uh, you know, not everybody there's a Philistine who's just living an un, untapped life. There's plenty of good things about that place. There's plenty of beautiful places to go. But by and large, people are obsessed there with success and obsessed with innovation and obsessed with technology. And when I got to Chicago, I was in O'Hare, in this massive airport, and there were people everywhere, and there were people next to me talking about a deal, and another person over here trying to push his way into the table. You're done with that, sir. Can we have your table? And I couldn't, you know, I'm not a person who likes density. I don't like urban areas. I'm not a city person. And it was hard for me. And when I finally got to Vermont, the first thing I did was sigh. second thing I did was sleep for about 14 hours. <laughs> and you know, and for me, this entire house, um, it's actually a retreat property. It's run by a, a furnace, a massive wood furnace. So if you don't get up to put wood in that furnace, you you get cold. And if you don't, you know, you don't move the truck at the right day, then you can't move the truck because the mud softened up and you can't get up the driveway. And if you don't, if you don't pay attention to the environment here, just walking this morning, I realized that there's an incline on the hill. And if you don't pay attention to your feet, you slip, you you fall, and God forbid you fall hard enough because there's nobody out here to come get you. <laughs> no, you know, it'd take them take them a while to it would take them a while to get here. To, so you got to be careful. You got to watch yourself. And I like that. I was an alpinist and an outdoorsman in my twenties, and I really always dreamt of living in the mountains. So being back up here is a dream come true. When you put a lot of technology between yourself and the world, and everything is mitigated, so. You don't interact with food anymore. It's already in plastic in the grocery store. You're not like buying it from a farmer. And your meat isn't from a local butcher. Here, those things are real. The meat is from, there's a place right down the street. I get the eggs. I get lamb. I can get pork and I can get beef. But they're right off the farm. In busy society, not only are we cut off from the food source, but now it arrives in a box in these little bags and we can put, make the meal. I, could, I, I don't like those services. I think they disconnect us. We don't, go, we don't have to deal with anybody because everything can get delivered to your Amazon will bring it to your door by drone soon. When you're in a tech company surrounded by an echo chamber of people that are doing the raw, raw, go team startup thing with their matching T-shirts and matching jackets with the logo of the company, you're not there to be an individual. You're there to be, you're there to be one of the sheep. God forbid you have an individual voice because you're not going to last long. And plus, again, the engineering community is not exactly the most rebellious, creative group of people. They're, they're engineers. They're very much about order, discipline, get to the next step. And there's something, I think, about programming, developing, when you're looking at code all day. I mean, what do we really think happens to the brain if you're just coding 60 hours a week? And that's all you do. And then you go out for drinks with your colleagues and you watch some sports on TV and I think it's the most deadening culture in the world. I'm not going to lie to anybody. I've written about it. I think Silicon Valley is, we want a lot more of that innovation to be, to be in every community. And I can think of nothing worse when people say, oh, we're going to teach coding to kids in Africa. I'm like, is that a, is that a good thing? We should be teaching kids how to critically think about their world. We should be teaching kids about that they have the possibility to go become doctors and lawyers and fight injustice and cure disease and maybe create food security on this planet in the next 20 years or fight for uh, the rights of indigenous people in places where they're being infringed on by climate change. You know, these are the integral goals of humanity. I don't think that endless innovation and endless development of apps and endless development of ways to become more paranoid about who's looking at your Facebook page are exactly healthy ways to be in the world. And if you want to resist that, you want to go against that grain, I'm not telling anybody it's easy. It took me a long time to get back up here. You know, I don't, I don't obscure that for a minute. Yeah, no, it's a very valid point. And uh, in my case, 
uh, I have the same struggle. And, and of course, I run the family business, which is in telecom, very technological. Now I'm part of the U.S. Smart City Task Force, so I'm helping trying to get that movement going. But mm-hmm. yet I have the year and, you know, the, the need to stay connected. And that's why early January I, I launched this movement, so to speak, hashtag time to reconnect. And it's about I work Great. very hard and I'm committed and I'm passionate about my work and I'm excited about smart cities and technologies and all that great stuff, but I don't want to lose my awareness that I don't want my work to over uh, completely shade my family life. I don't want to be looking at emails when when it's time for my family. I want it to be time for my family. I don't want to be uh, worried about the emails I have to read. And you, and you can make that decision not to read the email, but the fact that there is an expectation that you should bother. Absolutely. My, my own internal fight is with that. It's like, okay, I'm not doing it. I'm choosing not to do it. It's my family time. But the fact that I know out there someone is thinking, well, I, they start calling you, right? Because they, they wrote you an email five hours ago and you haven't responded. And right. so that is what makes me unhappy. Like that expectation when I try to identify it is that, that I'm being measured by that factor rather than I'll respond the email when it's time to respond the email. And Mm -hmm. so that's been my own personal journey on, okay, what can I do? Well, this podcast is one of those things, putting it out there and discovering people like yourself that I discovered through the podcast. And I really enjoy everything you have to say in your book. And definitely you have a new fan in me. And then trying to, to share that with other people so that, yeah, you can work hard, but we all have to come. I mean, in some of the European countries like France, it's already legal to write your employees outside work hours, which I think is fantastic. I think, it's, I think it we all true. should do that. Yeah, you know, you write to, write to your employees and write offline if you want to work. No one is telling you you don't have to, you cannot work at night. If that's what you want to do, great. But you're going to yep. send the email in work hours. And so right. nobody's going to get bombarded. <laughs> and when you get to the office at 9 a.m., you're not going to be afraid to open your email, which now has 100 new emails, when you were up to date when you left the office yesterday. Right. And so I think that's a struggle that a lot of us have. Great point. But it's very refreshing to also have people like yourself that really committed to bringing that, as you say, the integral goals of humanity more on the ethics side. It's just like it's such at a, at a broad level, this conversation, that it's like how do you tackle it one person at a time? Well, that's the question. I think that's what I'm trying to do or what I've decided to do now at this point in my career is, and again, it's something I grew into. I didn't, I, I had an idea that this might be a direction I would go into, but I didn't necessarily understand it. So now my approach is I cook, I, I do private cooking lessons. So I put people in a room and I say, you, you're not going to be able to take any pictures of the food. I say, why not? I said, because you're not going to be able to use your phone for the next two hours. You're going to be <laughs> here and you're going to make dough. Baking is one of the most sensual and beautiful things you can do. We're going to get our hands into a bunch of dough and we're going to make baguettes, which is, you know, a fresh baguette is like, basically, I think one of the greetings they have for you in heaven, when you get to heaven, they give you a glass of champagne and a baguette and butter because it's that good. <laughs> Even God yeah. knows how good baguettes are when they come out of the oven. So mm-hmm. teaching people to bake French baguettes is a fantastic way to get people into their bodies. The other thing I believe in is teaching people to write. Everybody has a voice. Everybody can say something. You don't have to sound like uh, Pavarotti to sing. You don't have to sound like Hemingway to write. You know, you can just write your voice, whatever that sounds like. So that's the other thing. I spend more time in my in my advisory practice. I'm not really a life coach. I don't want to be a life coach. I'm more of an uh, advisor. So people, if they're comfortable, share with me where they are in their business. I strategize with them about how to make it more efficient so they have more time. And then we talk a little bit about, like, what else are you doing in your life to ensure that you remain human? and that you remain connected to something bigger than your career goals. And some people are resistant to that. Some people will tell you to your face, being obsessed with work is a good thing. Uh, not, I don't believe that. And I'm not going to pretend that I believe that. I believe that having varied interests, getting outdoors, getting away from the city even as much as you can, living in rural places is a very healthy thing to do. And I think maybe we're at a point 
we're starting to get in front where people need to relearn it. I think it's often funny to see these posts of um, people need to learn, relearn basic skills like how to connect. I, I've had people come out and come way out here, which is, you know, we're pretty, pretty remote. And they get out there and they, I can tell they're panicking a little bit. They're thinking, you know, does the Wi-Fi work? Are you sure? I'm like, yeah, it works. Just not only in the house. <laughs> or they say, um, you know, this is, we're, we're out here, huh? So yeah, we're out here. <laughs> they, they say, you know, they say, you know, <laughs> it's just funny to see people kind of adjust. It's, God, it's quiet. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, yeah. It, there's nothing out here. You know, there, for 30 miles, there's no other folks. So I'm joking, and I'm not trying to be pejorative to anybody. I get why people feel that nature is so alienating. But for me, I believe that's at the core of our issues. we got to get closer to one another, and we got to get closer to the, to the planet. I'm not trying to sound like a hippie, even though I pretty much am one. But, you know, <laughs> I think it's. I think if we get back to knowing what our food is, we get back to knowing what our own heart is, and we get back to being really honest with one another in a relationship about who we are as men and women, who we are as friends and lovers and partners in this world, um, it doesn't matter what shape of your relationship is. Um, uh, it, it really is how we all connect as people and then how we connect to this planet we're on. I don't think it's so much about going to Mars or creating another level of abstraction, another level of, I mean, I'll give you the funny, uh, the biggest irony in the world is now there's about a hundred apps for how to meditate. So you got to meditate by putting on your phone. No, you have to meditate by shutting off your phone. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I agree a hundred percent. I like to meditate, but I have to say that I resisted because I, I, it's counterintuitive. I'm like, I'm not going to put it on my phone. Like, there's a few things like exercising and meditation and that kind of stuff. I'm like, no. Sure. You, you want to exercise, go out and run <laughs> or walk. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, if I need a, a nap for that, then it's just like, <laughs> I don't know. It's a, an admission that we really have become too dependent on, on, on a cell phone. It's, it's, it's ironic. You know, people, people don't know where. Like out here, there's no GP. There's no. You can barely get a GPS signal. So, the 10 miles that it goes, it's dirt roads 10 miles up to the closest town, and it's a, a small town. Well, if I don't have, I, my phone's not going to work. So I, you know, you have to rely on signposts. Like, oh, that's the meadow on the left with the big rock in it, and that's the. You take a right where there's a red barn. You know, we can't do that anymore. People are incapable of doing things without a Google map. And yeah, yeah. I think it's kind of funny. I think it's amusing. Or, you know, um, like I said, I've had people visit and I say, well, you know, part of your participation in the household, you got to cut wood. And they're like, cut wood? I'm like, yeah, you got to cut wood to put in the stove because the stove goes out and there's no heat. <laughs> so yeah. I think it's a great way to live. I think we got to do hard stuff every day. I think they're cold. And, uh, and I forgot this. I forgot how much New England was in my blood. Like I'm used to cold temperatures. I'm used to rain i'm used to temperamental weather i'm used to wind and you know the west coast is is fairly benign in terms of weather for the most part and i missed the challenge it is just to get out get outside here you know it's about 19 degrees right now it's pretty cold wow and yeah it's, it is cold. it's refreshing definitely colder than in sunny miami where i'm at i i don't complain i have to say i like the warm weather but you know, this conversation, I mean, I can tell how I can have uh, five episodes with you. you. You're amazing. If there was one thing, just to close on our conversation, and I ask sure. you the same question at the end of the podcast, is, and you, I think for me it's very clear, but I have to ask it, is, is there one thing or a few things that make you tick that say, yeah, this is what makes me tick. When I do this, this is me. This is Louis. I'm happy. That's a good question. I... Again, I learned my way back. I had a return. I take a lot of comfort. You know, I trained as a chef, so I've made my living more than once cooking. And I really, if I could cook my own food every day, I always get reconnected. I get reconnected from the minute I sharpen my knife to the minute I do all my prep with my veg. And I do a lot of slow cooking, so a lot of cooking happens. I start in the morning, and then by dinner, it's done. I think cooking is probably top most of my list. The other one is I need to be outside in nature. I got back here and started walking around in the forest almost immediately, walked about five miles the first day. There was a snowstorm. I got up, walked right out into it, and, and walked until I was frozen and came back. And I, 
I connect really deeply with the woods and the, I, I, nature, particularly Robert Frost talks about the landscape of our soul, uh, the poet Robert Frost. And I find mm-hmm. that New England and the hills here and the woods here really speak to me. I've never felt more at home than I do here. And I think that's the second. And then the third for me is really connecting and acts of empathy and love. I think if I see somebody hurting when I'm on an elevator or I'm in the street or in a store, I ask them, are you okay? Um, I feel like that's what we're here for is to reach out to one another. And in my life, you know, like everybody else, I've had disappointments and I've had difficulties. And I think the ability to forgive, the ability to be empathic with people, to put yourself in the other person's shoes for a minute, to look at things from their perspective is incredibly empowering. And, um, you know, if I'm successful on this planet, I'm managing to, you know, eat well, to have good experiences that are connected to this planet, and then, and then also to love, to to love others and be part of a, a community as small as myself and my partner and my family, or as big as my community, or hopefully my country and my uh, the world I live on. And I think there's a funny story about a rabbi in comes from Spain. He li- ends up living in Sicily. And, his name's Abraham Abulafia. And he's considered a holy man by many people. And he doesn't really buy into that, his own propaganda. He doesn't buy his own. He's not out reading people his resume, that's for sure. And, but eventually, at the end of his life, somebody asks him, and they say, Rabbi, when will the world change? When is you know God going to come and save us all? And Abulafia shakes his head. He says, well, nobody's coming. There's no savior. There's nobody coming to save us. And so what do you mean? He says, when you look at your neighbor and see that you can be saved in your relationship with them is when the world will change is when we see one another as neighbors. And I think for me, that last level of connecting is pretty much everything. So I think we need it. We need more neighborly attitudes towards one another right now, right now more than ever. Totally agree. I totally, it, it, it takes you go go out driving on any street and, and you will know what yeah, <laughs> neighborly exactly. love is. Exactly, exactly. We can hope. We can hope. We can hope. I well, I think you're definitely um, contributing in a, in a great way uh, by sharing your thoughts and, and, as you say, voicing out these opinions and, and writing the books you're writing and putting it out there because it's really refreshing and encouraging for people like me and hopefully our listeners to to find out that there's people like you out there that are doing the extra work to bring awareness, which is not an easy thing and, and of saying the things that are not usually the, the most popular things to say, but that create that prompt to explore oneself and, and look inside and see, you know, what what do I think about this or how do I feel about this particular thing? So I I I thank you for that, and I thank you for being part of the podcast, and I will be sharing all your information, your book, with uh, with everybody on our show notes. Thank you so much, Louis. I wish you all the best. I'm really happy to have had this time with you. Thank you so much for thinking of me and giving me an opportunity to share my thoughts with you, and um, we're real, a lot of fun. It was a great conversation, so thank you very much. And uh, Again, I think, you know, we're all here. We're all here on the same planet for a little while. I think we've just got to be a little bit more brave about connecting. And, and this conversation itself is a great connection. So it's not like it's impossible. You just have to be honest and brave. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Louis. Thank you so much. And until the next time.